Some of you were here with us a few Sundays back when we commissioned and blessed a group in our congregation that is called the Vitality Team or the Vitality Community Team. And uh, you know, some of you, that that flows out of an experience that we had last spring when we did what was called a Veritas gathering, Veritas being truth. We're wanting to be a congregation that, that recognizes the truth about ourselves. You've heard me say that churches are famous or infamous, perhaps, for not uh, ever asking questions about well, who are we and how are we doing and what God has called us to? And, oh, by the way, what has God called us to? And so we want to be a congregation that is always seeking him, wanting to listen to his spirit, to be the church in this location that he has called us to be, not assuming that we know what that looks like at every turn. And so a part of that flows out of that experience uh, will be different teams of people who are just at work exploring and asking questions and praying and and, uh, consulting all of you and perhaps dragging you into the experience to be a part of that, that sort of ongoing, let's know the truth about who we are and what God has called us to in terms of ministry and mission. Matt Granito is a member of the team and he's going to come this morning and give you uh, an update on sort of a a first piece where we have started so far. Matt, thanks. Good morning. You took my introduction there. That was good. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Fine. Um, I had a little bit of a review here. Veritas means truth. Truth telling or reality. Veritas is more than a workshop. But it's a language, it's a lifestyle, a way of being whose aim is to promote healthy missional churches. By healthy, we mean pursuing Christ. By missional, we mean pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. Jesus said, John 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth. That's reality. And the truth will set you free. That's vitality. Vitality is the capacity to live, grow, and develop. It begins with God who redeems all things for good. Vitality does not begin with systems, strategies, or structures, but with redemptive theology, repentance, and prayer. This is evidenced by a sense of desperation and brokenness before God. Vitality is being centered in the mission and the message of Jesus. The church position, we need to do something so we don't decline, is vastly different from a renewed sense of mission flowing from the heart of Christ. Vitality is a movement of the Holy Spirit that often happens in surprising ways, ways in which the church did not plan for or figure out ahead of time. (laughs) Cultivating a sense of mystery and a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit makes us more open to moving forward with God. Vitality is not about rebirth. It's about reality a current reality that requires an accurate and an honest assessment. Vitality may often come with conflict and opposition. Preparing for this challenge requires courage, hope, perseverance, wisdom, graciousness, and training. It is a communal effort that requires teamwork, effective leaders, and a healthy community. Vitality is a journey. It's not a quick fix. It is a means to an end, not an end in itself. 
Vitality is the responsibility of each church, regardless of its current state of health. Churches need to invest in their own vitality. It is not dependent on age, size, location, style, or past performance, but upon healthy habits. The church is in need of constant renewal. Vitality takes longer than planned, is messier than expected, <laughs> costs more than originally figured, and requires greater determination than once thought. <laughs> this is a tall order for any body of believers. It must be bathed in prayer, not just the prayers of Vitality community members, but also the prayers of you, the body of believers at Applewood. Early on in our Veritas Vitality journey, a prayer team was assembled of members Margot, Rick, Mary, Monica, Karen, Dale, and myself. So how do we pray? We pray that the Vitality community will seek and find unity in the spirit who dwells in our body. We also pray that, we'll, that it will succeed in silencing its individual inner dialogue so that God's will for the vitality community and for Applewood will be discerned. We pray that the task or project subgroups that need to be formed according to God's leading will come together and find workers and helpers in the Applewood body. We pray that the vitality community will not seek projects or programs merely for the sake of busyness and change, but will hear God's words for us and act according to his will. We pray for Bud and Paul, our Vitality community co-leaders, as they find a balance between waiting on God, cultivating spiritual unity and community, and the task-oriented mindset of getting things done. So where does you come in? You are invited to take part in this prayer group that will be interceding for the Applewood Vitality community as it, as it explores and facilitates <laughs> the Evangelical Covenant Church's Veritas process for Applewood Community Church. That is, moving us beyond being a safe, stable church to becoming a healthy, missional church for Jesus. As a member of the Vitality community, I am coordinating this effort so that you will be informed of our current and upcoming tasks and of the decisions that we will face. Prayer for truth, love, unity, mutual respect, wisdom, timeliness, and most of all, the discernment of the will of God for Applewood is absolutely critical for our success in learning his will and assisting our body in doing his will as a healthy missional church. I will keep you informed as the community enters upcoming steps of the process that will greatly benefit from your intercession or prayer. Hmm. This prayer group will not be required to physically meet together, but will be connected in prayer by the Holy Spirit as we spiritually gather in the name of Jesus. Background material regarding the Veritas program and process can be made available to you, should you wish it. And I would be glad to meet with you to discuss it with you as well. If the Holy Spirit is moving you to join us, or if you have questions about any of this, please contact me. I close with these words from John 17, verses 20 through 26, mm. which are Jesus' words for his disciples and his body. Mm. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. 
that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, but they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you yet, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them. And when we all make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Thank you. God bless you. Mm. Thanks, Matt. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you, Matt. You know, Matt mentioned a couple of different places. The, the dependence upon the Spirit and seeking God's Spirit you know, I'm convinced that I have lived over 50 years of my life and haven't really sought, actively sought, the work of God's Spirit in my life. Francis Chan, in his book, uh, calls him the forgotten God, that member of the Trinity who is forgotten. And so, as some of you know, there is a connect group that goes on downstairs, and we are reading that book. And I have, oh, way past, looking back, John... And I have been asking the Lord to lead me, to, to guide me in ways that perhaps I have not ever listened to before, to value the presence of God's Spirit who lives in me, very biblical truth, as we know. And don't worry, I didn't throw my notes away because I felt like, you know, the Spirit was just leading me to do something else. You know, that, that, that's, always, that's always a little scary. But I have to tell you, this experience that I had this week, I think it was on, I don't know, it was earlier in the week. You know that down Youngfield, you turn right on 44th, just slightly east, a couple of blocks, there is an adult video store there across the street from the, uh, the truck stop. And I go by it at least twice a day uh, if I'm heading home for lunch or at the end of the day because I get off Ward Road exit and swing around and then it heads me west on 44th and there it is as I turn to go north on Ward Road. And as I was driving past it, there was a man who had walked across the street from the truck stop and was on his way to the parking lot and to the front door. And I had this overwhelming sense of pain. Just this sense of, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go there. It's nothing but pain and hurt and destruction. <clears throat> so strong that I almost turned around, but I didn't. Because I was afraid. End of the week, took the Ward Road exit again, come past the adult store, 
There's no cars around. And there is, I assume, the guy who's running the store standing out front, smoking and the doors hanging wide open. And I had this overwhelming sense that I should stop and talk to him. But I didn't because I was afraid. So I decided I'm not going Ward Road anymore. (laughs) I'm getting the heck out of Dodge and I'm going a different direction. My friends, fear of things that we perceive as harmful, as embarrassing, as, as uncomfortable. It, that, that fear is it's common. It's common to all of us. Whether it is fear out now, fear, whether it's worry, anxiety, call it what you want. I think they're related. But in this New Year's series that, that we have called Imagining, well, no, okay, let's be honest. I've called it imagining, and I'm, and I'm hopeful that you're buying into it. Imagining what would life be like if we listened to the Spirit of God and really lived out in His power what we say we believe. What we say we believe. What would that look like for us as individuals? What would that look like for us as, as a congregation? And, and, I, and I, I know that it sounds negative. Like I don't think that God's people are doing that. But the truth is I don't. I know that I am not doing that very well. And I'm suspicious that, that you might not be doing that very well either because it is an epidemic amongst the people of God, the church of God, In this country, how many times have I said ad nauseum to you that the reason more people in this country are not interested in Jesus Christ is because they have not encountered Him and kingdom values in our lives. I really firmly believe that. And I think the reason for that, as you know, because we've been into this now for a couple of weeks, is that we really don't understand the power... The amazing, transforming power of God's love. We just don't. And, and I say that fairly confidently because God's people as a whole live with way too much fear in their lives. Fear and worry and anxiety are part of our daily lives far more than, than we we know because it can be quite subtle. Fear can often, anxiety, worry, it can fall into those categories, those more sanctified categories of responsibility and stewardship. Many of you know that as a congregation, we have been involved in the severe weather ministry, uh, severe shelter uh, ministry in this winter. And so on certain weeks, we open up the building and, and, and we provide a place for homeless people to sleep. Many of you have been involved in that. It's been amazing. I walked in here on Friday morning. We had had the severe weather shelter on Wednesday night, Thursday night. And this place stunk. It smelled like smoke. It smelled just a hint of, of, of alcohol and a lot of body odor. Just the way you want your church building to smell. And I walked in and I thought, whoa! 
God opened some windows in this place. That was responsible of me, don't you think? What motivated me, what motivated me was, I was concerned that the Thursday morning homeschooling moms group was going to come in here with their little children. And it was going to smell like smoke and alcohol and good heavens. What would they think of us? More importantly, what would they think of me, the pastor of the church who promotes this kind of thing? And then I went downstairs to the bathroom. It was pretty dirty. And I had this thought, man, can't these people take better care of our facility? Stewardship, right? Fear that potentially if we continue to open this place up to that ministry, eventually the building's going to be trashed, the carpets are going to be stained, the walls aren't going to look, it's going to smell like smoke all the time, and then people aren't going to want to come here because we'll be known as the stinky, ugly church. And if people don't come, then who am I going to preach to? You laugh. That kind of thinking, I'm suspicious, is a part of your life, just maybe not with those issues. If the church is going to be an effective, transformative presence in the life of this broken world, and that indeed we know was Jesus' plan, then the people of God have got to start living... People of God, me in that list, at the top of that list, with confidence in the one who redeemed them for a relationship of intimate love with the Father. And I believe that what flows out of that is that we live a life without fear. I'm convinced that the the only way that we can do that is to understand God's love and, and live, let the power of his love in us cause us to live as if we really believe that God does love us and that he is sovereignly watching over our lives. Not just for eternity. We all like to believe that. He saved me and I'm secure for eternity. But he's also secured me for this life. He has secured us for this life. We tend to think in terms of of God's love only as saving us from hell and securing us for heaven. and, And that is for sure. But, but we are saved for this life as well. Not only from this life, but we are saved for this life. And until we take our final breath on this earth, we have a life in Christ to live, one of confidence and without fear, because we are loved not just then in heaven, we are loved now. And that's why we spent the last two Sundays looking closely at Romans 8, In Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul struggles to communicate in language something that that really cannot be captured. The the wonder and the amazing nature of God's love. And, And his struggle, I think, is our struggle as well. Because we live in a culture, as Paul did, where expressions of of love are are shallow and, and selfish, perverted, our understanding of love is really rather warped because the human standard of love is flawed. And you remember in those words, in Ephesians, Paul prayed for the believers there that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Do you remember those words? 
In other words, he, he, he wants them to know something that is beyond knowing apart from the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives making it known. And the reason we learn that he prays that, pray that you can know the love of Christ that is just beyond knowledge. It's on the other side of our experience. But I want you to know that Paul prays so that they and us would be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. What a statement. Filled to the brim, we said head to toe, with the character of Jesus Christ who is the fullness of God in bodily form. God's people, indwelled by the Spirit of God, are the presence of Christ in the world. Do you know that's why we call it, why the scripture refers to it as the body of Christ? It's more than just a nice image. We really are the body of Christ. The presence of Jesus in this world. He left, went back to the Father, said, wait for the Spirit to empower your life. The Spirit came, the church was birthed, and away it went. With Jesus' intent for his people to be his presence in the world. How we actually live our lives impacts the impression that people have of Jesus. So how are we doing with that? So let's take it a step further this morning. Read from another writer, John, the apostle, who was equally amazed and overwhelmed with the love of God. And, and John shares with us in his, thir- his first letter of his three little ones at the end of the New Testament, a more uh, definition, a, a, a adds to God's love, and then reminds us of something that, that is really important that the love of God does, that I think we need to, to hear. So let's stand and let's read from First John together. All right, here we go. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them. And they live. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment 
In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. All right, Karen, can we put that slide up with the neighbor question? John has talked about, written a lot about in this chapter, love. It says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So, chat with the neighbor for a minute. A little more specifics. What kind of love is John referring to? What kind of love is John referring to? Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. How can he make that statement? What kind of love is he talking about? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, we ready? Got it all figured out? So what do you think? What kind of love is John referring to here? Kind of love that heals fear. Okay, I'll buy that. Perfect love. The kind that you have for your wife. Catherine would attest to that, right? Just a glimpse. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> okay. Unconditional love. Okay. What else? <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Good. It is God's love. He is the source of that love. And, and, and if we understand that, then all of those, those answers that, you know, it, it is perfect, it is unconditional, it is the 1 Corinthians 13 love, yeah, because that's what drives it. Diane, did you want to add something? <laughs> that is so right on. It's safe to say that his love is going to take us to some difficult places. His love is going to take us to some scary places. His love is going to take us into places that, that challenges us to the core. Yeah, yeah. Because often we, we assume that this is the way it should be, and yet that is not necessarily the way that God wants to work in that situation through us. And, and, and trust Trust is a huge piece of that. Absolutely. It, it's, it's all about sacrifice. It's, John is saying that the person who has experienced God's love, the one who's filled with the love of God, and that is by the Spirit who indwells them, is going to live out that same kind of love. Godly love indicates that a person knows God and has relationship with God. If that, if that kind of love... John would say, is not the consistent theme of a person's life. If it is not sacrificing and putting oneself out there for the sake of others, then there's reason to question whether or not an individual really does know God and that God dwells with that person. I want us to look for just a couple of minutes at three of the specific phrases that we read together uh, that John uses to drive this point home. And, And the first two, I think, sort of, flow logically into the last one, which is, I think, rather outrageous and one that, that, that we need to hear loud and clear uh, in this morning. So, Karen, can we put that first phrase? We know 
that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. John says, the way that we know we have a relationship with God is because his spirit in our lives is confirmation of that relationship. It's confirmation of our relationship with God as our Father. We are His children. Remember, this is John who says in this same letter, chapter 3, what amazing love the Father has given us that we should be called His children. And that is what we are, John says. It's an internal confirmation of our standing with God. The Spirit moves in. The Spirit sets up shop and says, you are mine, now let's make some changes. That's the work of the Spirit when God comes into our lives. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. We've heard this together. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. To the Ephesians, he wrote, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance till the redemption of those who are God's possession. Did you hear those pronouns? The Spirit himself. You were marked in him who is a deposit. This is not an expression, my friends, of may the force be with you. This is an expression of God is with you. In fact, God is in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a recipient of his grace, if you have accepted his free gift of salvation, recognized that you are lost apart from his grace, welcome to the party of the redeemed, the spirit of God lives in you. We have been given the very presence of God. It's always interesting to read the the church fathers and their, their wrestling with the language regarding the Trinity. The persons of the Godhead. They refer to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have been given the very presence of God. The person of God is in us. So let me ask you, do you think about this? do I think about this? As I go about my daily routines and as I gauge in relationships with others, do I think about the Spirit of God, His presence living in me? And what is the purpose of His Spirit living in me for? Well, that's obvious, right? It's to make us feel good about ourselves and enable us to live a successful life. That's why God is in us, right? Reason is so that we can live a life of love. Godlike love. Sacrificial, other-focused, not concerned about myself kind of love. Okay. Throw it away because there's only one. Real love is the love that God has demonstrated for us in his son. John says it clearly. And that we know is sacrifice and giving for the good of others. So, second phrase, Karen. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Wow. 
Again, John is referring to godly love, love that sacrifices for the sake of others. In the same way that 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 first phrase is sort of an internal confirmation or proof of our standing as children of God, this one is more of, I think, an external confirmation, a life of self-sacrifice, a life where we are constantly putting ourselves out there for the sake of others and for their well-being, regardless of what comes back to us, that kind of activity screams the love of God of God in a person's life. Jesus, you remember, asked his followers one time, so why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? We could take that and we could lay that over John's text here and we would hear him say in this passage, that means to live in love. To live in love is to live a life of sacrificial love towards others. Love gives, love sacrifices. The one who loves like Christ is more concerned about others than self. And John says earlier in the chapter, this is how we know what love is. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so I believe that when we strive to live sacrificially toward others, the spirit of God strengthens and encourages our efforts because that is how God is then seen in our lives. In John 13, when Jesus told his disciples, the world is going to know that you're my followers by the way that you love one another. He wasn't talking about warm fuzzies and love notes. He was talking about their willingness to lay down their lives and to sacrifice for one another their willingness to look beyond those things that typically divide and to do what is necessary for the good of one another. So, we have the presence of God in our lives as his people. God's spirit is in us and assures us of who we are, empowers us to to live out who we are by demonstrating love for others in the same way that God has loved us. True love, remember, is never easy. It's not fluffy. It's not a feeling. It's a commitment to do what is right. So can you imagine what would our lives be like if we were allowing these truths to really take over who we are as individuals, as a congregation? Imagine the church, the presence of God's people, that is the church, the presence of God's people in this culture would be hard to ignore because we would be a people who are loving and giving and sacrificing for the sake of others regardless of what comes back to us. Karen, can we put the third phrase up? In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. (laughs) There's plenty of fear in my love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. It's a very aggressive word in in the language. It drives it out. It pushes it out. Think in terms of where we've been when God comes in in the form of His Spirit into our lives. Paul said, so that we can be filled to the measure of the fullness of Christ. That means that as the Spirit fills us and we respond to God's activity in us, fear is driven out of our lives because there is no room in us for that fear. 
John's point is that a child of God, as a child of God, we have nothing to fear. Remember those words from Romans 8? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of spirit, of, of the law of life and death, sin and death. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when John says that in this world we are like Jesus, he means that, that we do not have to live with a fear of the judgment of God. As Jesus lived in intimate relationship with his Father, we too, because of the presence of the Spirit in our lives, can live in that same confident, intimate relationship that Jesus had. Jesus, you remember, told his followers, don't fear those who can kill the body. I'll tell you who to fear, he said. Fear the one who, after your body's dead, has the power to throw your soul into hell. That's who we ought to fear. But the good news is, as followers of Jesus, as those who have received his free gift of salvation by faith, we don't need to fear God as judge. We can come before him as Abba. So here's the thing. Why, if this is true, do we live our lives with so much fear? Fear of what others think. Fear of not being loved or appreciated? Why do we fear all those things that that threaten our comfort and our safety and our security in this life? We fear what people think of us and what they can do to us. Why do we give people and things power over us? I think there are probably a number of reasons One is that I'm not sure that we really believe what the Scripture says. Somehow, God has become small. People and things have become large. We don't really believe what the Scripture teaches about who we are in Christ. Or or we misinterpret not intentionally, but, but we read things like that last statement in Romans chapter 8 where in all of these things, Paul says, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors. I like that word, conqueror. Give me my sword and give me my stallion and let me ride through life being a conqueror. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we're more than conquerors in the midst of all of the stuff that life throws at us. All the hurt, all the pain, all the tragedy, all the trauma, all the grief. We are more than conquerors. These things don't have power over us. Paul says we are, we are more than conquerors. We, I think, often misunderstand and misapply the truth of Scripture. So, where does that leave us? Not really sure. I think that it leaves us as God's people going back to His Word, recognizing the presence of His Spirit in our lives, and saying, Holy Spirit, 
you know that I fear a lot of these things. You know that I fear disease. You know that I fear death. You know that I fear that my boss doesn't like me. You know that I fear financial loss. You know that I fear for the lives of my kids. On and on and on and on the fear list goes. And my, my challenge to you would be that when we give in to those fears and we are not constantly speaking against those fears with the confidence of who God is in us, that we are indeed more than conquerors, that nothing separates us from his love. When we give in, we minimize the greatness of God in our lives. Fear is such a natural part of our fallen condition. And yet, I really believe that, that God calls us to live fearless lives because he has placed his spirit in us as the source of that confidence, the source of that peace, the source of that that authority, his authority over things that would threaten to separate us. Perfect love drives out fear. Are we experiencing that in our lives? Praise team, come on up and prepare to lead us as we as we close this morning. There was a funeral earlier this week of a young woman who had been a student at Faith Christian Academy and she'd had a heart condition for quite some time and was awaiting a heart transplant. She died in the wee hours of her sleep on Monday. You can imagine how that rocks the lives of her friends. Some of my kids knew her well. My wife was her teacher. Those sorts of things remind us of our humanity, our mortality. Those kinds of things can strike fear in our lives. I think it's pretty natural. I don't know that that we can avoid it. but, But what is our response to those kinds of things? Is our response biblically informed? Is our response supported and encouraged by the presence of God's Spirit reminding us of the truth? Or do we allow ourselves to to fall into those places where statements are made like this? I don't want to hear any longer that she's in a better place because right now I hate God. That's a tragedy when a child of God makes that expression. Why is God punishing this family like this? Do we really believe those kinds of things? It's incumbent upon us as the people of God to know the truth and to battle the temptation to fear and to succumb and to bring God down and to do that battle with the power of the Spirit in our lives, reminding us of what is true, what is right, and what we need to cling to. Father, you know that fear is endemic to our condition. 
You've called us to be people who are fearless. You've called us to be people who have in view the bigger picture. You call us to be people who who know, yes, even when a beautiful 20-year-old young woman is plucked from this life and it tears at every fiber in our being, your spirit reminds us that indeed she is in an amazing place. Father, we either believe that or we just go down the tube of doubt. So we ask, by your spirit who indwells us, that we be people who, who want to know, who will seek for it, and who will listen for the truth and live it out in this life that you've called us to live. For Jesus' sake.